just so appreciate the worship that Tiago just led us in. I think I've already cried off all my makeup, so we should be okay now for the rest of the morning. <laughs> so my name's Susan Reddy. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I, am a co- I have been attending church here at Granville Chapel for a long time, and uh, it is my joy to bring God's Word to you this morning to open it up. So it's Easter Sunday. It's uh, springtime. I love this time of year. It's actually my favorite time of year where you see the flowers coming up out of the ground and the trees starting to blossom and new life coming up everywhere. And um, of course, Easter celebrations with Easter egg hunts and lots of candy and chocolate. And, you know, I remember so many years um, preparing special Easter egg hunts for our three children when they were little, complete with rhyming clues, and they had to run around the house looking for their Easter eggs, and the joy they had as they looked for those little Easter eggs is honestly um, something I will always treasure. But the truth is, there is a uh, far deeper joy associated with Easter Sunday, isn't there? So much more than celebrating the Easter bunny or spring. For those of us who know Jesus, we understand We celebrate on Easter Sunday the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of mankind, where our Savior Jesus Christ came back to life after dying on a cross. Amen. Amen. (laughs) And so much so that many have actually renamed this day Resurrection Sunday. But here's the thing how do we really know Jesus rose from the dead? Perhaps you've been coming to church for a long time and you actually still struggle to believe in the resurrection. Or maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe, you know, you come occasionally, but really you're pretty much dragged here. And and it just sounds so unbelievable. In fact, it sounds like really what you think is that most Christians have just kind of put their rational brains on hold to believe this. So... The truth is, though, our faith has to be based on reality, doesn't it? It's not going to hold up when the hard things come. And so we need to look at the evidence to see whether, in fact, our faith is really rational. Because if it's really true, it changes everything. So it's certainly worth the time to look at, isn't it? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. In fact, we're going to look at the resurrection and the evidence of it by looking at chapter 20 of John, which was already read to us so beautifully this morning by Raywin. And it was written by one of Jesus' disciples, John, the one Jesus loved. I notice he calls, he never calls himself that, and he really wanted everybody to know that he got to the tomb early, right? Three times he tells us. <laughs> it was written by him because he wants us to believe. And so we're going to consider two questions. How do we really know Jesus rose from the dead? Is it rational? And second, if he did, what difference does it make to me that a man raised from the dead 2,000 years ago? And so will you um, bow your head with me and pray, and then we will look at this together. Lord, this morning, um, I'm just really asking that you would put your words in my mouth, as you promised Jeremiah all those years ago that you would do. And Lord, that you would speak to your people that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what truly happened all those years ago. Help us to look at the evidence together, Lord, and to understand what it means and what difference it means that you did rise from the dead. So we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's start now. Please open your Bibles to 
John 20, or you can follow along up on the screen. So let's look at, uh, first of all, how do we really know Jesus rose from the dead? So let's um, look at, first of all, before we do that, I think we need to think about, uh, how, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples for a minute, okay? <clears throat> they loved Jesus. They had given up so much to follow him, and they had put all their hopes and their dreams in him. They'd lived up close with him for three years. They'd seen him do amazing miracles, teach amazing things, and they really believed that he was the Messiah that had been promised for so long. But now, he was dead. And most of them had run away in fear during the ordeal, uh, but John and Mary Magdalene and some of the other women, including Jesus' mother, had stayed. Imagine watching your son crucified on a cross. They saw, they, they stayed to give him what they could. They couldn't do anything, but they gave him their loving presence. So he wasn't alone when he died, and they saw it all. They saw all the abuse, the whipping, the, the difficulty, the struggle. They watched in horror as he was nailed to a cross and raised up in front of everybody naked and die in excruciating agony as his life slowly ebbed away. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, they saw him cry out, it is finished, and give up his spirit and die. Now, some people claim that Jesus only fainted on the cross but nobody survived a Roman crucifixion. In fact, actually, the body was never released to the family or friends until the soldiers were absolutely sure that the, that the person was dead, otherwise they would forfeit their lives and they would die. And I read an article a few years ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association written by a group of medical experts called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, and it goes through all of the things that happen in a crucifixion. Honestly, I wept my way through that. Um, that article to see what happens to what they used to do to people when they crucified them. And after considering all the scientific evidence of what is known to happen to a person when they're crucified and also the gospel uh, eyewitness accounts, they say modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when he was taken down from the cross. So if anyone tells you Jesus only swooned on the cross, don't believe them. Jesus could not and did not survive the crucifixion. And he was buried because it was close to, it was Sabbath was going to start in a few short hours. The, uh, his followers had to quickly go and get the body and they very quickly anointed it with like a fortune and spices. So many spices. They were rich followers of Jesus that did this. Wrapped him in linen and then they put him in a borrowed tomb and they rolled a massive stone in front and then they all went away. And Jesus' disciples and his followers were devastated. Devastated. Jesus, when he died, all their hopes and their dreams died with him. And instead they were left huddling together in complete, absolute despair and grief and terror. Because they thought they were going to be next. They were hiding behind locked doors. You know, some people think these were gullible country folk predisposed to believing in a, in a resurrection, when in fact, the last, the last thing they expected was a resurrection. Yes, Jesus had told them he was going to rise again. They just didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. And they were going to need some pretty strong evidence to be convinced. And so, 
In chapter 20, John begins to unpack that evidence for us that shows us how the disciples changed from abject despair to glorious hope and belief. So let's just look now at, first of all, we see um, he gives us in verses 1 to 10 how he came to believe. So basically what happened is very early on the Sunday morning, after Sabbath, Mary Magdalene went back to the tomb. And we know from the other uh, Gospels that she went with some other women, but John doesn't focus on that. So <clears throat> when she arrived, she sees that the, actually the stone's been removed from the entrance, and she immediately thinks that somebody has robbed the grave. That was a very common occurrence back there, then. So she immediately runs back to tell Peter and the other disciple, who's John, um, <laughs> that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So when they hear this, when John and Peter hear this, they immediately run to, to the tomb. And John got there first, we know that, he tells us it three times, but he doesn't go in. <laughs> but Peter, he's so impulsive, he comes barreling along, goes straight in to the tomb, and what he does, he sees lying there, he saw the strips of linen. He saw the strips of linen. Now the Greek word used for saw in this verse is theoreo. Theory comes from this verse, this word. It means to find out by seeing, to try to look at the evidence, to try to understand. So we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but here's what um, the, a logical person would be thinking. Hmm, if robbers stole that body, why did they leave all that expensive spice and linen? Or if they stole it, why did they remove all the coverings and spices that stop the body from smelling? And if one of his other followers took the body, why would they dishonor him by unwrapping him and taking him naked? Doesn't make sense, right? <clears throat> so meanwhile, while he's contemplating all these things, John finally comes into the tomb, and he sees the strips of linen lying there, and what he sees is the strips of the body lying there, and then the strips of the head separate from the body, as if a body has just literally moved up out of it. He sees the strips of linen. And he believes. He believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. He doesn't understand it all yet, but he believes. So these verses give us two strong evidences, don't they, of the resurrection. The linen, strong evidence. The empty tomb, another strong evidence. Look, honestly, once all the hullabaloo started happening about Jesus' resurrection, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers and everybody else would have moved heaven and earth to find that body if there was one. In fact, actually, uh, the Jewish leaders had even asked Pilate to put a guard on that tomb so that nobody could steal the body because um, they didn't want all this to be said about the resurrection. But this is strong proof, but it's not yet conclusive, is it? So now John gives us some eyewitness accounts. So he talks to us about the eyewitness account of Mary Magdalene. <clears throat> so now, in verse 11 to 14, we see Mary then goes back to the tomb. She's standing outside crying. She's overwhelmed with grief. She bends over and she looks in the tomb and she sees two men, one sitting at the foot and one sitting at the head of where Jesus' body used to be. Clearly, she doesn't know they're angels. Um, she says to them, um, they've taken my Lord's body away and I don't know where they've put him. She wouldn't have said that to a couple of angels, would she? She didn't know. And so meanwhile, she's still full of grief and she must hear something behind her because she turns around and Jesus is standing right there and she doesn't recognize him. Now, she may have been so consumed by grief and tears that she couldn't see properly, but here's the thing. She simply didn't expect him to rise. She was looking for a dead Jesus. She 
thought there was no way that person standing in the garden was going to be Jesus. In fact, she thinks he's the gardener. And so she has this funny little interchange with him. And then finally, Jesus simply calls her name, Mary. Mary. She recognizes the voice of her Savior. Her eyes are opened. And in that moment, she knows her Savior has risen and Jesus is alive. And she clings to him with her joy. She just clings to him. And probably she's afraid he's going to go again, right? But she can't stay clinging to Jesus because Jesus has a job for her to do. He says, Mary, go and tell the others that you've seen me, that I've risen. Go and tell my brothers I've risen from the dead. And so what does Mary do? She takes the good news to the disciples. Mary was the first person in history to see Jesus alive, and she was the first person to testify to the resurrection. The first evangelist in the history of the world was a woman. (laughs) And her message was simple, but oh, so powerful. I have seen the Lord. Now, this is an interesting choice. Why a woman and why Mary? uh, Certainly, Jesus shows us he loves Mary. He esteems and values women by choosing women. A woman, uh, because we know from the other Gospels, other women actually also were the first witnesses to his resurrection. But this was an extremely misogynistic culture, really misogynistic. Women were not valued at all. Their testimony was considered completely unreliable. In fact, the early Greek philosopher Celsus wrote the earliest recorded attack on Christianity, and one of his main avenues of attack was Mary Magdalene. He said this, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a historical, hysterical, hysterical female? He just thought, oh, she's hysterical. Don't listen to that. Yet, every single account tells us that the first witnesses Every single gospel account tells us the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. And why Mary? Did you know that Mary used to be demon-possessed? Jesus took seven demons out of her. So before she met Jesus, she would have been someone who wandered around talking to herself, hearing voices, imagining things, crying out, and possibly even hurting herself. Yet Jesus chooses her. He says, Mary, you're going to be my first witness. Our Lord is so full of grace. When we know him, our past no longer defines us. But let's going back to the evidence. If this was a grand hoax, why would perpetrators pick women to be the first people who said they'd seen Jesus rise from the dead? Why would they pick Mary, a woman who'd previously been demon-possessed? Clearly, the reason that Mary and the other women are listed as the first people who saw him is because it's true. They were. Jesus really did rise from the dead. So we have more evidence. Now John moves us to looking at more eyewitness accounts. This time it's all of the disciples. So we need some men as eyewitnesses. So let's get some disciples, right? In verses 19 and 20, Jesus actually shows up in the room while they're all huddled together, all except Thomas. He comes in, says, peace be with you. They're so terrified, so overwhelmed. And then he shows them his Wounds of the crucifixion on his hands and his feet. You know, this was not just a spiritual experience for them. He wasn't a ghost or an apparition. He actually had an actual body. 
yes, a um, glorified body that could move in and out and appear and disappear at will and come behind locked doors, but nevertheless, a real physical body. They could see him, they could touch him, they could hear him. In fact, later we hear he actually ate food. So Jesus had a real body and they saw him and they recognized him and they were literally overjoyed. I think this is one of the Bible's understatements. <laughs> The Bible does that all the time. They were overjoyed. Imagine how they felt. <laughs> and then later, a week later, when Thomas finally sees and touches his scars, he goes as far as to worship him. In verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus accepts that worship from Thomas because it's true. His resurrection proves that he's God. There is literally so much eyewitness accounts of Jesus. He stayed for, four, for 40 more days before he went back to heaven to, to appear to all kinds of people to give evidence that he really, really had risen. In fact, less than 20 years after the resurrection, the apostle Paul wrote a public letter to the Corinthian church that anybody could read that telling of hundreds of people who saw Jesus alive after his death. And at one time, 500 people actually saw him at the same time. And these were people that were still alive at the time that uh, Paul wrote this letter, so they could have refuted his claim. They were living down the street. You know, you could have gone and asked him and found out if he was really telling the truth. And then he describes his own encounter with the living Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was on his way to hunt down Christians and kill them. He met the living Christ, and it completely changed him. He went from hunting Christians to actually to actually proclaiming Christ and dying for his faith. For me, this is the most convincing proof of the resurrection, the absolute transformation of his followers. They went from abject fear, hiding, despair, to joy and became the most fearless men and women alive. In fact, they believed so totally in the resurrection, they were willing to be beaten, shipwrecked, go hungry, abuse, jail, tortured, even die for their faith. People will not do that for a hoax or an imagined encounter. They had met the living Christ, and they knew it, and they were forever transformed. So looking at all of this rationally, not just putting my brain on hold, looking at it rationally, for me, the only logical conclusion is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So that's our first question. Now let's look at our second question. What difference does it make to me anyway that he rose? To answer that question, we have to answer another question. Why did he have to die in the first place? Jesus came to earth to die, to rescue us from our sin. Now sin is not hard to talk about. Believe me, I don't love talking about it. <laughs> It sounds offensive, it sounds archaic, but sin means simply to miss the mark. It means to fall short of what God wants and desires for us. And if we were honest, we would all have to admit that we do things and think things that hurt ourselves, that hurt other people, and that hurt our world. That is called sin. And sin, separates us from God. And sin hurts, separates us from each other. So we hurt each other now. 
Sin damages, it destroys, it actually brings so much suffering, and yes, it brings death. And this is not what God intended when he created us, not at all. God is infinite in love, and he desires great, great good for us. In fact, he created us for himself, to live in harmony with him, to live in harmony with each other, to live in a world where there's no pain and suffering and sin and death. But, and you know, honestly, we had that at first. We did. We walked in the cool of the day in the garden with him, but our first parents messed it up. They thought God was holding out on them. They thought God had something they they weren't allowed to have, so they took it, and when they did that, Sin came into the world, and now, instead of flourishing in relationship with God, we're separate from him, and we're afraid of him, and we either think maybe he's just waiting to hurt us or judge us, or we soothe ourselves by just deciding not to believe in him at all. And now, instead of living forever, we will all eventually die, and yes, we will face him. We will face judgment for the things we've done wrong. And so... God does not want that for us. And so he sent Jesus on a cosmic rescue mission to save us from our sin by dying on the cross for us. Jesus, who is God, loved us so much that he gave up the throne of endless glory and allowed himself to be born in a cradle in the dirt. And he lived life as a human being. He knows what it is to struggle and to be hungry and to be disappointed and all of the things we go through except one thing. He never, ever sinned. And then he loved us to the end by going all the way to the cross to die, to take the punishment we deserve for our sin. On that cross, it was not the nails that held Jesus. It was love. He was and is God. He could have come down any minute. Imagine how much love it takes, how much strength it takes to stay on a cross all that time when you could have come off any minute. He did it because he knows, knew, and knows there was no way, no other way to remove the impenetrable barrier between us and God. He did it for us so we could be reconciled to him. He loves us so much. He came to earth so we could have him forever. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. But here's the thing. If Jesus had not risen again, none of that would matter. A dead Savior cannot save us. Remember, Mark on Friday said he called Good Friday Hard Friday. we talk about Jesus dying, it would be forever hard Friday if there wasn't Resurrection Sunday, right? And so what does Jesus' resurrection mean? It means victory. Victory. It looked like utter, complete defeat and darkness. Jesus, the Son of God, was dead. Dead. And I'm sure Satan and every demon in hell was sitting on that stone laughing and chittering and happy that they had killed Jesus imagining all the harm they could do to God's people, keeping us separate from him. But nothing could stop Jesus, not every demon in hell, not, every, not Satan, nothing. Because on Sunday morning, Jesus, the roaring lion of Judah, rose again in victory. Victory over Satan, victory over sin, and yes, victory over death. 
Ah, when he rose, <laughs> when he rose, the Holy Spirit exerted such power, the earth literally shook. There was an earthquake. And when he rose, God the Father, it proved he accepted the sacrifice of his son for your sin and my sin. When he rose again, you know what Jesus did? He roared down through history and on into everything in the future. These people are mine. Victory. That's what his resurrection means. Victory. His resurrection, it means freedom. Freedom. Or is freedom. Have you ever noticed how hard it is not to sin? Oh, it's so hard, right? It's like the siren song. It's always attracting us. We want to do that thing we know we shouldn't do. And when we do, oh, we feel guilty. We feel shame. We don't want other people to know about it. We hide it. And over time, it kind of accumulates and it kind of drags us down. It's like we attach a chain to our leg and we're dragging it everywhere we go. And we don't want people to know and it sucks the joy out of our life. Jesus' death and resurrection changes all that. Because when Jesus rose again, and when we believe it, it's like he takes an axe and he goes, bam, I set you free. He breaks the chains. We no longer have to drag that sin, that shame around with us because Jesus paid it all. And Micah tells us it's like he throws our sin into the depths of the sea. They're gone. They're gone. We never have to see them again. And we don't have to go back. We don't have to go fishing. We don't have to dig them up. They're gone forever. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And we can walk in glorious freedom because not only does he take away all the punishment and all the shame, but he actually helps us to walk free. He gives us the very power to walk in paths of joy and righteousness and goodness with God. And so he takes that power of that sin and he, first of all, he changes our hearts. He comes to live inside of us by his Holy Spirit when we believe in him. And he changes our hearts. So we don't like that anymore as much as we used to. And even if we do like it, we love God more. And the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, that made that, right, that whole earth shake, that is available to you and to me to walk free of that sin that so easily entangles so that we can run and not grow weary. We can have joy with our Lord. We can be free. Jesus' resurrection means glorious freedom. It means sin does not have the last word. No matter what we've done, how often we've done it, we are cleansed and set free. We don't stay in the ashes of defeat because Jesus rose again. And finally, and most importantly, Jesus' resurrection, it means life, life, glorious life. Because he lives, we live. Have you ever seen a desert come to life? I think there's a picture here. A dead desert, just lacking in any kind of life. Suddenly when a rainfall comes, it springs to life. Flowers grow, plants grow. That's what God does for us. That's what Jesus' resurrection does for us. It brings us to glorious resurrection life because he takes our stone, cold, dead heart and he turns it into a heart of flesh, a warm, tender, loving heart that loves God. 
And so we get glorious resurrection life now because we get back what we lost. We get relationship with our God. And that is what we need for resurrection life. It's the relationship we were created for. And because our sin is gone, we get this incredible, breathtaking intimacy with him. Now, instead of being separate from him, we are his cherished child. In fact, he says in scripture, he delights over us in Zephaniah. He rejoices over us with singing. Imagine that, God rejoicing over you with singing. He loves you that much. And he lives in us by his spirit, so it's like he's no further away than our very heartbeat, right? The intimacy is incredible that we have with our God. He walks with us, talks with us every single step of the way. We can lean on his power, we can have strength, we can delight in him, we are fully known and we are fully loved by him and this is the relationship in which we flourish. This is the relationship in which there is life. We look for it all over the place. We try to get it in the things of this world, but we're never gonna get it in the things of this world because we were created to only be flourishing with God in relationship with him. There's a place inside of us that can only be filled with him. And when we understand that, when we look in faith to God Jesus, we get that resurrection life. And even when life is hard, yes, it will be hard. Jesus did not say it's gonna be all sunshine and roses if you believe in me. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We can know he's with us. We can know the strength to walk through it. We know, and so that's enough for us. And so because we have peace with our Father, we have peace with each, within ourselves. Within ourselves, no longer are we looking everywhere for our true identity, looking inside for our true identity, thinking our identity or our meaning or comes from what we do or what we earn or, or, or anything like that. Now we understand that our true, most beautiful, most incredible value was shown to us by Jesus, the Son of God, giving himself for us on the cross, and that in fact our most beautiful identity, our true identity, is child of the living God. That's our identity. And so we can know we're fully known and fully loved. Isn't that what we want most basically? We don't want to hide part of ourselves anymore. We want to be fully known and fully loved, and we are done. That is what we get through Jesus' resurrection. And so we can have no more separation between each other. We don't have to fight for our rights anymore. We don't have to struggle with each other. Because it's okay, we belong to the, we, I'm child of the living God. What difference does it make, right? And of course, that's not gonna be perfect. Yes, we're gonna keep on doing things we shouldn't. But you know, ultimately what we find is we, we understand deep inside and we flourish in this life in a way we cannot without the resurrection. But here's the thing. It also means glorious, everlasting life, doesn't it? Because when Jesus rose, he conquered death. We sang it this morning, oh death, where is your sting? And now all who believe in him, although they die, they will rise again and be with him. And this is a guarantee, an absolute guarantee for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been transformed by him. Because when we truly believe, he marks us with his Holy Spirit. It says that in two places in scripture, in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That is a seal saying, this person is mine. 
And God has given us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so yes, we're all gonna die and we don't like that idea. I know that is scary. But we don't need to fear it. Instead, we can have confidence because death is now just a doorway, a doorway into the presence of our living savior. One day when we close our eyes in death, we will open them and we will see Jesus. We will see his beautiful face and we will be with him forever and that is when real life actually really begins. C.S. Lewis finally famously said, this life is just like the cover page. Real life begins when we're with Jesus because then every tear we have, every tear, every heartache, everything we have suffered, it will just pale, it will go. We won't even remember it in the light of seeing our savior. And Jesus is coming back. <laughs> I mean, Vivian prayed that this morning. One day he's coming back. He is coming back. And we will, when we know him, we will either come with him because we've already died or we'll see him coming in the air. And he is coming to bring his kingdom. He's going to change this earth. You know, at that moment when he comes back, we're going to get glorified bodies. Honestly, that, I'm really looking forward to that part. <laughs> No more struggles with aches and pains. Won't have to go on diets all the time. <laughs> Anyways, I'm making a joke. But truly, when he comes back, we're going to have glorified bodies too, just like his. Because we weren't created to float around in the air in a cloud. <laughs> People think, oh, heaven sounds so boring. Heaven's not going to be boring because it's going to be here on earth in a completely changed kingdom. A kingdom where we are with our God, how he originally intended. We'll be with each other. We'll be with brothers and sisters. My mom, Andy, who went ahead of us. We'll see them. We'll have forever to be with each other in relationship, to be with our God in relationship. We can explore everything in this creation, in this world. It's going to be so amazing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has for those who love him. So yes, life now, it's just the cover page. There's so much more coming. It's literally breathtaking. So... Uh, is Jesus' resurrection relevant for you today? Oh, yes. Jesus' resurrection is the most relevant thing in the history of mankind. So all of this and all of it, all of it, it's simply a breathtaking gift that God the Father wants to give you because he loves you. You can't earn it. Yes, we don't deserve it. Jesus knows that. He did it for you and he just wants to give it to you. So my question for you is this, do you believe it? Do you? Maybe this morning you feel like Mary Magdalene, you're weeping over loss, weeping. Or maybe you feel like those disciples, you're hiding in fear and despair, feeling like you're living in the ashes of your dreams, you don't know what God is doing, it's dark, you're not even sure what's happening. A dead savior is not going to help you. A good teacher won't cut it. You need a living savior. You need the resurrected Jesus to give you resurrected life. And Jesus wants to give you that today. Like he did for Mary Magdalene. Right now, he wants you to know he is alive and he is calling your name in love. Can you hear him? 
truth is, there is enough evidence to believe, but maybe you're not ready yet. Ask him to show you the truth. But if today you've heard the evidence and for the first time you think, you know, I really think this is true, simply pray to him and tell him, you're sorry for your sins. Thank him for dying for you and receive this resurrection life, this victory that he wants to give you. And if you do that, I'm going to pray at the end, come and tell someone what joy that will give us. But for those of us who do know him, which is, I think, the vast majority of us in this room, my question for you is, um, and me, are we living in the reality of, what, of this resurrection life? Or has the pain and struggle, the busyness, the difficulty, has it blinded us um, to our living Savior? Today, he calls your name again. He wants you to know he loves you. He did this for you. He wants you to live in the reality of what he got for you, in the victory that he's given you, in the freedom that he bought for you, in the life that he has for you. And he wants us to live in that. And yes, we will struggle, but no matter what comes our way, we can know this. We belong to Jesus. He is alive. He's here right now with us. And he's given us everything we need to live in victory and freedom and resurrection, joy and life. One day, we are going to be seeing him face to face. We will be able to touch his scars, the scars that he took to save us. We too will declare, my Lord and my God. But in the meantime, we can know that we have him with us. And so I want to end this by reading you some lyrics from a song I love on the radio called Fear Is Not My Future by Maverick City Music. And they say this, Fear is not my future, Jesus, you are. Sickness is not my story, Jesus, you are. Heartbreak's not my home, Jesus, you are. Death is not the end, Jesus, you are. So hello, peace, hello, joy, hello, love, hello, strength, hello, hope. Jesus has risen. He, Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have risen. You are our resurrected King. You are alive, and because you are alive, we can have life. And so this morning, Lord, I know that you have been knocking on the door of some people's hearts this morning. You've been calling their name because you want them to know you. You want them to have resurrection life. And so, Lord, now I pray with them. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins all those years ago. Dear Jesus, I am so sorry for what I have done wrong. I look to you in faith and believe that when you died and rose again, you took all of my sin, and now I accept from you resurrection life. I accept from you salvation. I accept from you everything you want to give me, victory, freedom, life, Jesus. Be my Savior, be my Lord. And for those of us who know you, Lord, we pray that we would live in the reality of this resurrection life that you have given us. It is, it is breathtaking. It is the most joyful thing that's ever occurred in the history of mankind. May we live in that reality and live victorious lives of joy. So when we go to anyone, Lord, we can say to them, I have seen the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.